You've probably heard of patients, or maybe you've even attended a few, who've been out enjoying a night at the pub with friends. Perhaps they've got into an argument, or been caught in a scuffle, and in a flash, they've been punched in the head, and seconds later, have been knocked out, stopped breathing, and never woke up again. There are a multitude of examples of one-punch deaths, motorcyclists or horse riders, who've all had blows to the head, and then later, either on autopsy or on CT scans, have no visible damage to their brains. So, what killed them? If you're listening to this and shouting impact brain apnea, you'd be right. But, do you know what's happening when we say that? Do you know what the mechanism of death is for these patients? And do you know what interventions we can make to make the difference to them? This month we're looking at impact brain apnea. We might even manage to keep the time on this episode, but I wouldn't hold your breath. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name is Josh. And my name's Alex. And this month, Alex, we're talking about impact brain apnea. So why are we talking about this? Yeah, so last month we were looking at uh, traumatic cardiac arrest and we talked specifically about the HOT principles. There was an awful lot for us to cover in that podcast and a section we really only briefly touched on was oxygenation and ventilation during an apparent TCA. There was an awful lot for us to cover in that podcast and... The section that we only really briefly touched on was oxygen and ventilation during an apparent TCA and the specific importance of that in patients presenting with impact brain apnea. Uh, This is a really interesting topic and although it's not at all new, it's only really been discussed with any frequency in the last 10 years or so. So although hopefully it's a topic that's not new to emergency clinicians, we thought that it would be good time to take a slightly deeper look at the topic so let's get started by answering what exactly is brain impact apnea brain impact apnea impact brain apnea is exactly what it says on the tin it's a blow to the head that has knocked the individual out and has caused them to stop breathing now a reasonable number of deaths due to head injury occur in the first 10 minutes in what's been termed the critical phase of injury now some of these deaths are due to an overwhelming primary injury either significant destruction of the cranium so as to be incompatible with life or causing such a significant traumatic brain parenchymal injury that it can't be treated There are, however, a subset of patients that, as we said at the start, have a relatively undamaged brain, apart from the development of a significant hypoxic brain injury. These are the patients this episode is about, the ones that should be easily salvageable if the appropriate chain of survival can be lined up. So you said, Alex, that it's only really in the last 10 years or so that this has really re-entered the narrative. Is this a new thing? Is this something that uh, is is new science? So... I first heard about brain impact apnea actually when you and I were students and and my understanding at that time was that it was something that was discussed uh, particularly around London and in urban centres and the it would be people hit by a bus and the people on the scene would say that they'd been hit and immediately stopped breathing and that was sort of raving, waving some little uh, red flags. And actually the history of impact brain apnea probably goes back quite a lot further than that. 
Accounts of what we believe were impact brain apnea date back as far as 1705, where a French physician described the case of a criminal who, prior to being executed, hit his head against a wall, killing himself, but not damaging his skull. And later authors also described similar instances of a phenomena which they termed fatal concussion, where apparent head trauma has caused death without visible lesion or injury to the brain. And there were varying explanations and disagreements for what was happening in these patients, from microvascular bleeds, which are invisible to the naked eye, to trauma-induced vasospasms, which restricted cerebral blood flow. And in around 1874, Filane and his partner Koch began to investigate this phenomena further uh, by using animal studies in which they would apply a concussive force to wooden boards strapped to the heads of dogs. Um, and with this study, they demonstrated that repeated blows to the head will induce apnea without causing apparent brain injury. And further animal studies in the 1890s, the 1920s, and right up until the 2000s demonstrated that the period of apnea is uh, proportional to the intensity of the strike to the head. So the harder you hit your head, the longer it will stop you from breathing. Similar animal studies then went on to demonstrate that if artificial respiration is given during gapneic phase, there is an instance of survival potentially to normal neurological function. And finally, a study in 1995 which looked at head trauma in anaesthetised pigs found that when the pigs were given ethanol, lower forces were required to cause this period of apnea. So we can see from all this research that it is a long-researched and demonstrated phenomena in literature. But Josh, can you tell us exactly what's happening? Yeah, so it's... It's a fairly complicated process and uh, I'm not a neurologist, but I understand it and I like to think of it in three distinct phases. So there's the initial impact and the occurrence of apnea. There's the development of a hypoxic brain injury and then there's a resultant catecholamine surge that can cause cardiovascular collapse. So we'll break each of those phases down. So the initial impact and, and how does it cause apnea? So um, I found the exact specifics here really difficult to, uh, to 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 get any clarity on so there's some podcasts and sources uh, that talk about the pre-botzinger complex which is an area in the uh, medulla of the of the brain and they talk about the apnea being a reflexive action to the concussive force um, it's important to bear in mind that it isn't always apnea that this generates sometimes with with uh, less impactful forces you'll cause ventilation dysfunction which achieves a similar thing in principle to apnea but the patient will still look like they're breathing and there's a pretty clear correlation between harder hits causing apnea it doesn't need too much explanation that if a patient becomes apneic and they lose their airway they will become hypoxic and hypercapneic but what's going on in in those individual aspects that that cause the ongoing development of this pathology uh, so if we look at hypoxia then, so the brain is probably the most hungry organ in the body. Huge amounts of ion channels, synapses, which are reliant on a constant feed of oxygen and glucose to produce ATP, allow the cellular function within the brain. So if we think back to our A-level biology, Alex, I know this was uh, a bit of a long time ago for you, but what's the most basic premise of neuron activation? What do we need to maintain in order for neurons to be able to activate 
Uh, well, from what I remember, it's a resting potential of high levels of sodium outside the cell and a higher level of potassium inside the cell. Yeah, exactly. High extracellular sodium and low intracellular sodium. So we need that to allow an action potential or for a neuron to fire. So if we stop the supply of O2 and glucose, you very quickly get dysfunction within those cellular ion channels uh, that maintain that resting potential. And remember, ions will always want to have an equal balance inside and outside of a cell. So maintaining that resting potential requires a constant use of energy. So with no ATP creation, the gates open, so to speak, and tightly controlled balances of intra and extracellular ions are lost. So we get an influx of intracellular sodium to the cells in the brain. And where sodium goes, water will quickly follow. So we can very quickly develop what's called a cytotoxic edema, and we see that as cerebral edema buildup. Now, if we add into that the fact the patient is also becoming hypercapnic, which is occurring at the same time, this effect is compounded. I think we've discussed before how CO2 is quite a potent vasodilator. So if our patient becomes hypercapnic, we get cerebral vasodilation, which causes vasogenic edema and the breaking down of the blood-brain barrier which is a network of tightly packed endothelial cells across the majority of the brain's blood supply. Yeah, and it's cyclical, isn't it? So the more cerebral edema you get, the greater the intracranial pressure and the further reduce, uh, the further reduction of cerebral perfusion pressure um, and worsening hypoxia, etc., etc. So it's sort of a downward spiral from that point, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and there's other stuff going on, which I'm not going to talk too much about, uh, such as how uh, calcium and free radicals will affect ATP production. Um, I think the above is confusing enough in an audio format. So suffice to say, without rapid intervention, our apneic patients go on to develop our hypoxic brain injury and cerebral edema. And that brings us on to the third phase of this pathology, which is the catecholamine release. So catecholamines are the neurotransmitters of the sympathetic systems, adrenaline, noradrenaline and dopamine. And when our brain is injured, we know that we get a huge catecholamine surge as a stress response to the brain injury. So some texts refer to this as a catecholamine storm. And for reference, some animal studies have documented a 500 fold increase in uh, adrenaline plasma levels following a significant head trauma. So this catecholamine storm will cause tachycardias and a notable spike in blood pressure. Okay, so hang on, let's let's just recap that quickly. So we've got this brain that wasn't initially or, or didn't initially have any physical um, parenchymal injury from the primary blow to the head, but is now starting to be damaged on the sort of cellular level. And it's it, we've already got impaired autoregulation of the blood flow. We're starting to develop increased intracranial pressure as a result of the cerebral edema. And now on top of that, we've got this spike in blood pressure, loads more blood flow into the head and making that intracranial pressure even worse. Is that right? Yeah, it is. And that catecholamine surge doesn't just have an impact on the brain. It also affects the heart and the lungs as well. So there's autopsy data that demonstrates myocardial injury from ECG changes to areas of necrosis within the heart and even physical myocardial hemorrhage uh, from the massive pressure change that this catecholamine spike causes. 
So is that the same principle as finding ECG changes in subarachnoid patients? You know, in some cases of subarachnoid, you get ST, ele- uh, ST changes and, and, mm. and even sort of ST elevation. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's the, the catecholamine spike in that instance as well. So you get this increase in preload and afterload from the constriction of the blood vessels either side of the, of the cardiac pump. Uh, and so it's a huge amount for the heart to handle. That on top of the fact that the patient's in this instance is probably acidotic by this stage as well, it all leads to a really, really unhappy heart and then patients that can paradoxically go on to become hypotensive from a pump failure or cardiogenic And I shock. take it in this instance, this this pump failure, this, this unhappy heart, I take it that's not a patient that we want to give uh, extra fluids to given that they're already struggling. Yeah, yeah, so kind of jumping the gun going on to treatment a little bit but yeah exactly this is uh, a really tricky one because you've got a cardiogenic shock picture uh, and potentially a patient that's becoming hypotensive but with a heart failure type pathology on top of it so uh, I guess the risk with fluids is then that you end up pushing that onto the lungs and that brings me on to the lungs nicely actually as I said the lungs are affected by this catecholamine storm too So because of the cardiac strain or failure that can occur from the increased afterload that the heart is pumping against, that then backs up through the cardiac system. And there are instances where patients can go on to develop pulmonary edema. Now, I don't know that this is fast enough or that it's likely to happen in the pre-hospital phase. I'm, I'm not sure. I can't say that I've ever seen it. But it is probably something that we do want to be thinking about if we're considering fluid management in these patients where their blood pressure may not be quite where we want it. And of course, this is all going on in other types of brain injury as well. So we still get this catecholamine surge in head traumas where we've got bleeds on the brain and and all of those other kind of conventional traumatic brain injuries that we might think about. So obviously we're talking about this in the context of impact brain apnea, but, but this catecholamine surge will still occur uh in in the other types of traumatic brain injury that we might uh that we might think about and so that obviously also has a play when we're talking about uh intracranial pressure and cerebral perfusion pressures uh, and not wanting spikes in bp well by the very nature of the brain being injured in this way we are getting an endogenous spike in our blood pressure Right. Okay. So that's a nice clear story then. So, so we get a, a hit to the head, uh, that causes a chain reaction of sort of ongoing and worsening cellular damage, uh, due to the period of hypoxia, which then causes a, a catecholamine surge and all sorts of other physiological effects that continue to, without intervention, will continue to worsen and worsen, potentially up to the point of causing hypoxic cardiac arrest. So what can we do about it? Well, the really reassuring thing in these cases is that these are patients who do not have primary brain injury. This is all about the sequelae of the initial apneic phase. And that means if we can get to these patients soon enough, then we can really impact on this care. And the first phase of this is recognition. And I think this is something that probably we should be driving home to people providing first aid, first responders, and even members of the public. And a neurosurgeon from London by the name of Mark Wilson was really the person to spearhead the education of impact brain apnea. And it was actually one of the driving forces behind the creation of the Good Sam app, uh, which a lot of people think was created for cardiac arrest alerts. And obviously that is one of the main 
things that happens on it. But the real inspiration for the project was these patients. And that's, that's this drive to increase public awareness and this early intervention. Now, clearly for the majority of us, recognition and response time from a service level is, is somewhat out of our control, particularly in, in the current day and age. However, the ambulance service probably aren't the first responders that we need to be thinking about in these instances. So door staff who witness maybe a single punch to the head, uh, event medical teams, first aiders, volunteers, first responders, people who who go out with, with you know, horse riding or equestrian events. It, I, I, th- I just think it's really important that, you know, anyone who's potentially going to be in a position to to be the first person you know another common instance of this actually is motorsport as well so if if you're involved in motorsport i think it's really important that we we seize teachable moments and we try and do our best to educate the people who are going to be the ones positioned to make the most impact here though those people like you've said alex that that are a particular likelihood or potentially uh working in arenas where they they could see this presentation wouldn't it just be good if they can have education packages delivered to them uh, and, and and talk about this phenomena? And uh, I guess we only say that because there's members of uh, the ambulance service that that work in in all sorts of uh, additional environments and uh, and and have additional groups that they're involved with. So uh, if that applies to you, maybe consider um, running some education sessions for for the people around you and the the people that might be first on scene with these impact brain apnea patients. Moving us on to the kind of uh, the treatment and intervention phase here, but a really important point here: if if you are going to deliver education on this topic or try and increase awareness a really important thing is this is not just a case where opening the airway will be sufficient this is a period of apnea so the airway can be open but if they're not breathing we're not fixing the problem here so really what we're looking for here is yes excellent airway management but also ventilatory support if we're getting to these patients perhaps in our arriving as, as part of an ambulance crew um they they may even be starting to breathe themselves you said yeah okay we we need to do more than opening an airway obviously if uh if when they restart breathing they're trying to breathe against a, a closed glottis or a, an obtunded airway um that's less of an ideal thing so um yeah we definitely need to manage the airway and if they're not breathing ventilate them but the other thing is bearing in mind that apnea is only part of this uh, condition so ventilatory dysfunction will continue for a reasonable period of time after that uh, and this is a ventilation issue it's not just an oxygenation issue so putting a high flow mask on somebody that's that's not ventilating effectively probably isn't uh, the the gold standard excellent care that we really want to be delivering to them um, think about that cascade that we've just talked about think about hypoxia and the hyper capnea is is doing to their brain on a cellular level so uh, the earlier we can impact that and the earlier we can prevent that cyclical spiral down into a uh, edematous brain the better and so if we tolerate poor ventilation that's not going to solve the problem so we really do need to be monitoring these patients ventilatory function and correcting that and intervening um, if it's appropriate one of the key things is recognition, as we've already said. And I think if we do recognize this in a patient, even if that patient starts to breathe spontaneously, even quite quickly, this is still the time for an early call 
for critical care support because as you've just said Josh this is a pathology that is going to continue even after the patient starts to breathe the catecholamine surge and the other things going on these are going to continue to have an impact so this is a situation where I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but but this is a situation where pre-hospital uh, emergency anesthesia or sedation might be required to improve oxygenation. So an early call for critical care support is really important in these situations where we identify impact brain apnea. Yeah, absolutely. So these are 100% the patients that would benefit from a pre-hospital emergency anesthesia. Um, we want to be doing our best to address their oxygen and, and removal of carbon dioxide requirements, don't we? We want to be providing really good neuroprotective ventilation for them, uh, as, w- as well as all of the other benefits that uh, that an anesthesia would uh, provide in that instance. So, yeah, absolutely put an early call in for the critical care team. And if this is a patient that you do think is going to have a fear, we'd probably be wanting to take steps, don't we, to prepare for that anaesthetic to be delivered. So reducing that time from our critical care team's arrival to the time it takes for them to put that tube in the right place and start ventilating our patient and, and correcting some of those issues. And if you're not quite sure what the steps would be involved to uh, preparing a patient for fear, well, funny enough, we've done a podcast on it. And if you've not listened to it, maybe uh, that might be good good opportunity to, to revisit the subject. Um, just to have a little think about how you might prepare this patient then for an anaesthetic. So moving on from airway and breathing, which I know sounds a bit strange given that this is a an episode about apnea but this is where things start to get a little bit more confusing isn't it because these are possibly or even likely to be patients that have polytrauma uh, and for that reason may be hypovolemic so it might be that the patient is hypovolemic due to polytrauma but it might also equally be the case that the patient is hypovolemic due to the myocardial insult from the catecholamine surge or even possibly a combination of the two yeah and that's that is a super difficult call to make and i think a lot of those instances will be you know damned if you do damned if you don't so i think that's that's a call that's based very much on history and uh very much on the the your clinical gestalt of the patient that's in front of you i guess there's some evidence that i was reading i think it's something like 30 percent of uh, traumatic brain injuries we'll we'll link to it in the website um, but a reasonable subset of, of tbis uh, become hypotensive uh, as a result of this process that we've just talked about uh, w- without having the hypovolemic element so so yeah it's it's a really difficult call to make i think um probably the takeaway is that we just need to be cautious with fluids so yes if you think your patient is polytrauma and hypovolemic and we're not going to talk too much about those concomitant injury patients because we really kind of did that to death no pun intended on our traumatic cardiac arrest podcast uh i I just can't turn it off mate um (laughs) i wish you would (laughs) um so yeah, it, it, we obviously want to be cautious in those concomitant injury patients, but even in the isolated head injury patients that might be presenting with hypertension for the reasons that we've explained, uh, we may not want to be overzealous by pushing a load of fluid into them um, through risk of, of potentially overwhelming that heart and pushing onto their chest. So then in terms of 
packaging to transport because these are patients who are going to be going to hospital um you know once uh, we've had critical care and, and done all those good things that we talk about and uh, they've had the fear where are we going from then I, I hate to bring the subject up because you know i'll get my tin opener and the uh, the big can of worms but uh, collars do we feel that uh, collars have any place in impact brain apnea yeah so you you say about your can of worms i don't think it's that big a can of worms compared to what it used to be you know compared to like five or six years ago i i think most people i speak to are reasonably aligned on this so we all know collars uh are not uh without their potential harms and particularly in patients where we're talking about intracranial pressure um they can become really problematic can't they so we know that they um can cause occlusion or, or or compression of the uh external jugular veins which reduce venous drainage from the head worsening intracranial pressure uh, there's also all sorts of other issues with um, accessing the airway and airway management that they impact on uh, and thus our ability to effectively ventilate these patients um, which can be can be all sorts of problematic so personally um, I would be using this as an opportunity to not apply the collar in fact i don't think i've really applied a collar for many many years certainly not to protect a c-spine if it if it was um good and and uh, i I think that is i think that is enough on uh on the topic of collars i think we've probably um opened the can of worms or the former can of worms as far as uh is probably uh (laughs) worthwhile there um what about what about transport positions then josh yeah so uh again i'm not deeply certain on how rigorous the uh, the evidence is um but there's a reasonable amount of theory and some low-grade evidence to support head up transportation for these patients so about a 30 degree head up particularly if you're transporting these patients from road um can help reduce uh intracranial or can help reduce impact on intracranial pressure. So there was a study uh, not too long ago where they looked at um, uh, through ultrasound on uh, an eye, which is a related analogue to intracranial pressure. Um, They demonstrated relatively effectively that uh, transporting someone with 30 degree heads up can reduce um, the impact on intracranial pressure and reduce the impacts from braking and harsh braking in an ambulance. Um, so that's probably a good thing for these patients. Uh, if they're boarded, you can stack stuff underneath the board so that the head is just above the feet. That's essentially what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, as much as we would like to always be fully calm and collected, careful drivers um, in a in a situation like this, you know, thinking about it from a human factors point of view, there is going to be a certain amount of pressure to to get to a receiving destination, isn't there? So there's a good chance that anything we can do to reduce the impact of um, transport is a good thing. Um, and in terms of reducing impact, one thing that would obviously the, the the sort of name of the game here really is to try and reduce the impact of cerebral metabolic O2 demand, isn't it? So what kind of things can we do to reduce that oxygen demand 
Yeah, sure. So this is all about reducing secondary brain injury. So primary, as you've uh, alluded to, Alex, we can't do anything about the primary brain injury or the primary problem, which was the initial insult. Um, but we, what we can do is minimise secondary brain injury. So I said how the brain is a really O2 and glucose hungry organ, um, as well as providing adequate amounts of that, uh, we can try to reduce the brain's demand for that oxygen uh, so patients that are agitated patients that are in lots of pain patients that are really uncomfortable or really struggling to essentially fight or flight and su- survive uh, their brain's going to be demanding a lot of oxygen and therefore the supply that we have to provide um, is that much more and so the the delta or the gap between those two things um, would potentially result in in brain injury so uh, by ensuring our patients are adequately analgized if it's appropriate to do so or if we people that can provide uh, sedation or anesthesia for these patients making sure that they're appropriately um, anesthetized so that their brain isn't really noisy and very active Uh, it's not as calm a brain as we can create um, so it's not chewing through all the oxygen and the glucose that we're we're providing for them so in terms of destination then i think we need to be looking for these patients we need to really be considering whether we need to go to a major trauma center because it may be that the patient has come round. um you know there's a good chance that this is going to be a, a sedated patient but if the patient has started to to ventilate themselves or, or, or even started to have some sort of neurological recovery, and we don't know that this is an impact brain apnea until they've had a scan. So I, I think in a patient where we're considering impact brain apnea, we really need to be thinking about major trauma, um, even if it's a patient who does appear to be on a sort of upward trajectory. Yeah, yeah. So we don't know that it's just an impact brain apnea. There could be a parenchymal underlying injury or a subdural developing or something like that. So uh, yeah, definitely I would take them to an MTC uh, if you can get them there. And I think one thing that we should definitely talk about, because when we talk about these kind of trauma things, we tend to focus on adults and we we do talk about paediatric trauma occasionally. Um, but impact brain apnea in pediatrics um my understanding is that there is reasonable confidence in the literature surrounding this subject that a good percentage of pediatric traumatic brain injury patients present with an apnea it's it's relatively well uh, documented in the in the literature uh, I think it's just under half, something like that. And um, you could be forgiven for only thinking about the big mechanisms that we've talked about, like being, like falling from height and being in car crashes and things like that. Um, but we, we particularly in paediatrics need to think about non-accidental injury. Whenever we've had a history of an apneic child that is obviously a red flag um, but in these contexts where there's where there's potential trauma involved uh, you know there's instances of, of apneas or impact brain apneas being related to potentially sh- shaken baby syndrome um, and you don't actually need that much that much force in order to create it so we definitely need to have safeguarding in the back of our minds i just want to clarify a point that you made there so uh apneic episodes and a baby being a red flag that is a red flag 
in and of itself for medical reasons like you said it is, it's really important that we keep in our minds the possibility of non-accidental injury so an apneic episode is not necessarily a red flag for abuse or for brain apnea it is a red flag in and of itself but it's also important that we keep that um yeah you know as unpleasant as it is we, we, these things do happen and it's important that we are uh we have that in our minds isn't it okay so let's summarize We've discussed the pathophysiology of impact brain apnea, how a sudden blow to the head can cause unconsciousness and disrupt the innate respiratory function of the brain. Unless these patients have suitable bystander intervention, airway management and ventilation, they're at risk of developing a significant hypoxic brain injury. At the same time, this blow to the head and developing secondary brain injury can result in catecholamine storm, which in the most severe cases can cause myocardial ischemia, pulmonary edema, and even cardiovascular collapse, presenting us with a patient who doesn't appear to be bleeding, but is paradoxically hypotensive. We've talked about the good airway management, ventilation support, and neuroprotective care that's key to minimising this secondary brain injury, as well as touched on the importance of using our experience and knowledge as clinicians to help educate those that we come into contact with that are more likely to come across these impact brain apnea patients early on in their injury presentation. But that's all for this month. As always, we'll put links and references used to create this episode on the website where you can find previous episodes and topics that we've discussed. You can really help us out by clicking the follow or subscribe button if you haven't already. But all that's left to say is thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next month.